0: Just as a side note, in years where the corn market is bad, meat prices tend to be high mm-hmm. um, because uh, well, not right away. When corn prices get high, um, the, uh, the meat prices tend to get low. But after the corn prices are high for a sustained period of time and people have sold off all their cattle because it costs too much to feed them, the reverse occurs. So having corn and beef in your portfolio, as it were. Don't,
1: don't forget the pigs and chickens. And pigs and chickens because... And the wheat and the maize.
0: Right. All of that stuff is important uh, if you're going to be well diversified. The vast, vast majority of farms in the United States are not well diversified. They have one crop. Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with
1: our English dead.
0: Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake
1: and Jeff McClure. McClure.
0: Together we are bald.
1: And we have learned through diligent effort and long practice to say our last names together. Yes,
0: occasionally. Right. Right. Uh, When we are in top form, we can in unison say our names together.
1: Yes. Yes. Which is a lot more difficult than you might think it is because we're in different places and there is a significant lag between one and the other.
0: Yes. If you've ever watched, uh, well, everybody has, the 24-hour news channels as they talk to each other across satellite and they say, hello, Janet, please proceed. And Janet sits there and looks very intelligent as she's holding her ear. Gazing off into the distance for several seconds, and then she talks. Right. Yes. Live is not as live as it looks, or maybe it's not as live as it. It's not as live as it used to be, and maybe it's deader. Live is deader than you think it is. Well, digital digital live
1: is different from analog live and biological live. Yes. And we could, somebody could probably get a government grant and write a dissertation on that.
0: What do you do for a living? I'm a radio frequency biologist. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) All right, we are actually economists, and we're here to talk to you about, get this, the economy. We're also going to talk about some personal finance stuff because we do a lot of that as well. Um, The two of us uh, are uh, Jeff and Jake. Uh, Just so happen to also be principals at another firm or at a firm, it's not really another firm, it's kind of the firm that we're with, Um, the Personal Wealth Coach, which is also the name of this radio program.
1: Hmm. It's a whole nother firm.
0: It's a whole nother firm, yes. Right. Right. Specific to the word nother. Right. Um, Yes. So the Personal Wealth Coach is also an SEC-registered investment advisory firm.
1: What which the? does not imply in any way that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything we're doing. As a matter of fact, given the opportunity, they would disapprove.
0: Yes, that is their job. And we're just happy that they don't disapprove of us tremendously. Right. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure that they've ever disapproved of us, which is not because they haven't approved of us, but because they haven't had enough it's, notice of us, maybe? I don't. Well,
1: know. they looked hard.
0: Yeah. Um. All right. So... The SEC uh, doesn't give us some kind of brand of approval. They're just our regulator. Now we said that we're giving investment advice as a firm. That's something that's in the best interest of the client, putting the client ahead of us by far, all that good stuff. And we can't do that on the radio because we don't know you and you're not clients. And um, all of the privacy issues and all that good stuff if you are clients. Uh, So what we do instead is education. Because we believe that if we educate people, hopefully they'll use it. It seems to have some track record and that people that know more tend to make better decisions. I know this is weird stuff. There's got to be a study on this too. Uh, Do you have another disclosure for us?
1: Well, the information that we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. But we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information or unsaid information. We uh, also you know, do not. I went into my radio voice to say that.
0: Yes, we also do not pay for this radio program. It's not a paid commercial program. It. We also don't get paid to do the program, which makes us. I don't know. Is that charity? Pro bono. Pro bono. Uh, we do advertise on the station for the program. As does the studio. They, we have all been advertising this for a long time. We've been doing this program together since 1998, and you had two years in advance of that where you were doing it on your own for an hour instead of mm-hmm. two hours. Right. So uh, we've been doing this a long time.
1: We have another. We have another. We have several questions. Actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, the next one is uh, um, from Andy. Um, and it is a small investor whose portfolio is down 39000 from the first of the year. That's a lot. What should I be doing? Um, do you want to handle this or do you want me to?
1: Sure, I can take it. Without anybody that's down, anybody that's invested, whether you're in stocks or bonds, you're going to be down at this point. So it's, a, it's actually a little late to make the assessment. But here's what we have said for a long time. I'm just going to reiterate what we said during the bull market. Number one, what are you invested in? Is it long-term? Are you do, are you a long-term investor? If you're a long-term investor, then the price you pay for getting a long-term return higher than zero, actually sub-zero accounting inflation, is that you're going to have market variance. And that variance is on the upside and it's on the downside.
0: That means and the, over- the price to getting a, a long-term return in the market is downturns in the market. It it's backwards, criti- but that's how, you, that's what we, it's called a risk premium in
1: academia. It's, it is critically important to realize as an investor, what you have invested is not money. That is so important. Now, the, it's got a valuation, it's got a price valuation uh, that if it's on a liquid investment in the markets, uh, you can see how much your portfolio would be worth if you sold it every day, but it's not money. If you put it in the bank, that's money. And you can see not what it's worth, but what money in dollars is actually there. There's a world of difference. Your house, whether you intend it as an investment or not, is an investment. And at least once a year, you get from the uh, county a number that says, this is what my house is worth. Does that mean your house is money? No. Could you sell your house? Yes. Could you sell it for any specific amount? No, because market the, the housing market changes. It moves very slowly. It's not very liquid, but it changes. It's important to remember that when you commit capital to the market, when you take money and you turn it into capital, it's going to go up and down and it needs to be for the long term. And when you're going to invest for the long term, it's important that you think about what you're investing in. It'd be well diversified. It'd be something that is is worth, in your opinion, in the future more than it is in the present, and you're willing to wait for that. And last but not least, and this is critical, you don't think of it as money, and you have cash reserves to carry you through a bear market, and bear markets typically last 18 months or so. So you need to have cash reserves someplace if you need it for income.
0: Uh, We we like to recommend something we call dry powder, which is a liquid reserve in the portfolio if you're taking income out of it. And that liquid reserve is intended to preserve the assets rather than to go up with the market so that when the market is down, that's where you get your income. And when the market is up, you get it from the market and you pay back into um, the liquid reserve. Now, that implies that somehow we know the market's going to go up in the future and the future is anybody's guess. Historically, the market has been a lot more up than down, but it's had a lot of downs. This is why we tell people to prepare if they're taking income by having either reserve in the portfolio or cash on hand. And that should be something you can measure on how many months of income do I have in there in a liquid position. We we like to start at an 18-month number, by the way, right. because of
1: and you that in your in your in your investment portfolio we like to have 18 months of dry powder or we more. also suggest you have at least 18 months of dry powder we also suggest you have reserves particularly if you're in retirement and unable to earn money that you have cash reserves to draw on in a down market do we know that the market is going to go up no i can't i don't know the market's going to go down i don't know anything about the future when it comes to the market i can say that historically and economically The stock market of the United States tends over long periods of time to reflect the economy of the United States. And the economy of the United States is in great shape. And if you don't believe it, get out on the highway and see that everybody is going somewhere to do something. Even try to get it even a restaurant.
0: Gas is the price that is, and with inflation the way it is, go find an empty parking lot at a shopping center that's open.
1: And so if the economy is going like gangbusters, that's an old term and you own portions of company, that's what shares, that are in the economy and also doing well, there is a very high probability that you will do well into the future and you will make money. Uh, Your money will make money. And that that is the critical essence of investing. But it's really important, again, to recognize that money that is invested is not money that can be spent. If I could going a little longer. I use an analogy and I've used this so many times. I would think people get tired of hearing it, but I'm going to do it again. It's like a farmer with corn. This is an oversimplification. A farmer has corn. He can do three things with the corn. He can turn it into cornbread and eat it. He can put it in the silo and save it, or he can put it in the ground in the hope of having more corn. Now, some years his corn crop won't turn out well, So he's got to, year after year, you got to keep putting it in the ground. You have to have a long term plan for growing your corn. The corn in the silo, you say, well, that's safe. No, it's not because it gradually turns to powder. It loses value steadily over time. You can eat it. That's so, so eating it is the equivalent of spending your money. Putting it in the silo is equivalent of putting it in the bank and putting it in the ground to grow more corn is the Equivalent of investing, and if you've ever had anything to do with farming, you realize that some years you don't get a crop, and some years the price is lousy, and some days you lose money on your crop, and then on some years you make money on the crop, and that's the essence of investing in a nutshell.
0: Diddy. Sounds good. That 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 is it. Um, and something we would say repeatedly, and have said repeatedly, forever, and we will say forever: number one priority is short-term cash flow, having money safe in the bank. Number two with the money that's long-term be really well diversified across a large area and when i say well diversified i don't mean well diversified in crypto assets that's there's uh, no such thing as well diversified in crypto assets
1: let me yeah crypto assets is like growing marijuana dangerous Uh, it doesn't Uh, mean that it's bad just dangerous using the farmer analogy here we i talked about corn But if I'm going to use that analogy correctly, I would say if your diversified portfolio for the farmer would be having corn and maize and wheat and chickens and pigs and cows. Now you've got a diversified portfolio and you have to figure out what percentage of each you need to have. And for example, on bad years when the corn market is bad, but you've got plenty of corn, you can always feed the cows. And and that's basically the way a portfolio needs to be put together. It needs to be well diversified.
0: And that's a lot of risk, but it's also much more efficient if you're only working on one crop. You're just at the whims of the market for that one crop's return, which is why the futures market is so good. Do we have any mother, yeah. other questions hiding in there? I think we've got... Soft landing. Soft landing. Roger's question. Okay. Yeah. Um, guys, he says, uh, his, the subject is interest rate hike, soft landing. Says, guys, last week you discussed a soft landing. It seems that the Fed has, borrowed, has bowed to pressure and made an aggressive rate hike of 75 basis points. Will the Fed be able to moderate in the future? Or does this indicate it's less likely there will be a soft landing? Enjoy the program. Thanks, Roger. Uh, it just says that you probably need to take more meds, that you enjoy this program. Uh, we commiserate with you in sp- spending your Saturday mornings listening to two bald-bearded guys. Um, but you want to take the question?
1: Yeah, let me take that. There's among the more astute and historically accurate uh, market uh, prognosticators. That's a lot of big words. Goldman Sachs and so on. There is a about a 50-50 divide as to whether we will have a significant recession in the next two years, uh, the the ones, so so the, the estimates as to whether or not we're going to have a, a recession period run between 30 and 50 percent right now in various sources. Um, so could we, are we going to have a soft landing? Uh, The Fed is raising rates, and I think the 0.75 increase was probably appropriate because it's really important that the Fed maintain its credibility and convince the folks in the economy they're serious about fighting inflation. I strongly suspect inflation will unwind itself. It will come down by itself to some degree. I think the Federal Reserve Board members recognize that, so they don't want to get too crazy. But listening to their speeches, they appear to be focused on raising short-term interest rates to about 3.75% sometime in 2023. That's called the dot plot, by the way. But What happens is when they make a speech and, and a, a member of the board, a voting member of the board, says here's about where we think it'll be at some point in the future. It gets recorded, and some of them it's really high, and some of them it's really low. Um, what will that do? Somewhere, uh, Anybody's guess what neutral is. Uh, in, in as far as interest rates are concerned. Neutral interest rates is nor, neither stimulate the economy nor slow it down. But short-term interest rates, neutral is probably something a little like about 3.25% right now, according to most economists. If the Federal Reserve said, we are running interest rates up to 10%, we are going to kill inflation, which, by the way, Paul Volcker did say yeah. long, long ago. And he has a bear market and,
0: named after him, too.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so if 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 the Federal Reserve Fully intended, they are say we're going to do whatever it takes to kill inflation. We're going to crush inflation. And I don't care what happens on unemployment, we're going to crush inflation. Yeah, be scared. Be very, very scared. The the thought in the Fed is that a combination of the situation that is causing inflation and higher interest rates should moderate inflation and then it will bring things back to more or less normal. Um, what what does that mean? Interest rates are now lower than they were in 2019 before the pandemic. That means it's stimulative. First, they've got to get them up to the level they used to be and maybe raise them a little more. And when that happens, the economy will, it's already starting to slow down. Housing starts have fallen off as interest rates have risen. Uh, it, it, inflation is slowing down the economy, which is an interesting thing. From an economics point of view, I want to say something really interesting is happening here. People traditionally, if they believe inflation is going to be serious into the future, buy now, pay later, which is one of the reasons we go into recessions because people's credit card bills are very, very high. Why are they high? Because they expect inflation, which means they're buying now and paying on interest before the price goes up. That's not true. People, have been, uh, people in the United States have been reducing their credit card debts for the last two years. So we don't have entrenched inflation expectations based on what we see the consumer doing, which means probably a year from now we will see significantly lower inflation numbers than we're seeing today. Because we're looking back a year each time.
0: And I, I've uh, got some it. I've got some things to bring up
1: on that as well. So, so go ga- ahead. for instance, gasoline is up like some fifty eight percent or something like that over the last year. If it if it goes to six dollars a gallon, which is the highest anybody is talking about right now for that, it would be up about fifteen percent over the next year, not fifty-eight percent. I don't know that it's going to go to six dollars a gallon because Jake pointed out something. There's a lag in supply. Jake pointed out that the Baker Rig's Hughes, the Baker Hughes Rig, Baker Riggs Hughes account, yeah, okay. <laughs> the Baker, the Baker Hughes Rig count is up. Drillers are drilling. More oil is going to come online. There is a lot of evidence that uh, refineries that were scheduled for shutdown, they're not going to shut them down. Instead, they're going to renovate them and bring them back to life. A year from now, the supply side will be producing more. And a year from now, I strongly suspect, we'll be burning less gasoline, which means that prices will start to come down. The Fed raising interest rates at the same time means there will be less building. There will be less borrowing to buy new stuff. The, The key is... Does the Fed take this too far and crush it? And I think they won't. I think we'll have maybe a mild recession next year or in 2024. And that's what we'll have. Yeah, And I, then we'll come out of it and do okay.
0: The, the area that might see the most pinch, well, it's hard to say that because crypto is directly affected by the interest rate hikes. I mean, they, there's no way around that. Crypto is a place people were putting money because putting it in the bank wasn't paying them anything. So they said, I'm going to do this crypto thing. And they say it's sort of safe and sort of whatever. Now they're, they're realizing that anything that pays you more than the bank is taking more risk than the bank. And if it pays significantly more than the bank, then it's taking significantly more risk. The thing I wanted to kind of put some focus in on here, I mentioned this at the beginning of the first hour, um, and that's ESG. Um, environment, social, and governance. And the SEC, is the Securities and Exchange Commission, is cracking down on folks for that. They're looking into Goldman Sachs for their use of, of uh, ESG terms that really didn't have any research that suggested that they were ESG at all. They were just claiming that it was ESG. Um, the SEC is looking into a lot of firms that were doing that. And it seems weird that this is a subject I'm going to right after oil, but I haven't actually changed the subject. One of the issues in who is pumping more and faster right now is ESG. Privately owned companies that are developers, that are oil um, explorers, the wildcatters out there, are pumping a lot more now than they were a year ago. A lot more. Publicly traded companies, especially the big ones that have been courting the ESG market, are having a lot of trouble getting started on drilling again because they want to try to keep their ESG rating. It's really hard to keep your ESG rating if you're pumping oil out of the ground. So how's that for weird? What's happening is that a lot of these big, or I would say more like the medium-sized Sort of publicly traded, but they're over the counter. They're not on an exchange. There's a trend there taking them private, kind of a mass trend across that whole industry to go private again instead of public because they don't want activist investors preventing them from making a profit and maybe one of the last big oil booms that oil has left. Um, Why do I say that? Because technology is changing, just like. We can look back at the late 1990s and see that that was the last big coal boom. Um, It wasn't because coal is a bad thing to burn or because it's smoky and dirty or because of some kind of ecological reason at all. It's because natural gas is cheaper and more efficient. So it's both cheaper and more efficient than coal. It also happens to be cleaner. So we can all pat ourselves on the back and say, "Look how environmentally sensitive we are. We're using this cheaper, more efficient thing instead of that dirty thing over there." Yes, we're very good. Well, the same thing's going to happen eventually to oil, not because it's dirty, but because cheaper and more efficient is coming. There lots of folks have this week have come out with new versions of a solid-state battery. Um, There's a lithium-ion sulfur-based electrolyte that's being used that's increasing density. We're talking about hundreds of percent more density on these batteries, which means the holding and storage of power in automobiles is going to get more efficient, which means more people are going to buy them over gas-powered stuff. If you can drive 800 miles before a recharge, it's a lot better than driving 200 miles before a recharge. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so kind of add that all together, ESG is preventing a lot of oil companies from making massive profits right now. Now, having said that, I have seen dozens of memes over the week on the internet about Uh, Oil companies making record profits while gas prices are high. And how is this not price gouging? How is this not price gouging? They say, well, here's your answer. Oil is sold at an auction. That's how the market works. It's like the stock market is a big auction and a lot of things for sale at the same time. Oil is a more defined auction than that. People bid on oil. Let's say that you have your grandmother's piano at auction rather than oil. And it happens to be a time that a lot of people want pianos. And you put it up for auction and a bunch of people bid on that piano. Why don't you take the lowest bid? That wouldn't be price gouging at all. Why don't you take the lowest bid for the piano? That would be really nice of you, right? But I doubt you will do it. The same is true for oil companies. When prices are up, they're going to charge you for those prices because you're bidding the prices up by wanting to use it when there's less of it around. Uh, It isn't price gouging if you're buying it at auction and enough people are are bidding on it. Price gouging would be like Home Depot right before a hurricane says all of our lumber is now 400 times more um, valuable than it was pay or don't get any. There's laws against that. It's a, There's a, a, a strange situation that's kind of an emergency occurring. Uh, that They don't let Home Depot and Lowe's triple the price of the lumber when they're in the path of a hurricane. In fact, there are laws that say they can't do that. They're allowed to raise the prices but not be price gouging. So if the market is going nuts on lumber right before a hurricane, in Florida, because we have uh, sanctions on some country that brings in a lot of wood, and we've decided that it's going to be harder to bring that in for whatever reason. Well, the price of wood goes up, lumber goes up. Well, Home Depot is allowed to raise their prices based on what they're paying for the lumber, even when a hurricane's coming. So that's the difference between price gouging and an auction market. And man, I see a lot of that, where people are saying, oil companies are raking in the profits and this is price gouging. How can they get away with this? Well, because you're paying them for it. If you don't want them to make a profit, stop buying gas. Well, I need to buy gas. Well, then you can put money into drilling for gas and then you could you could make the money. But that means you would have to put that money at risk. And part of the reason why we've had a longer ramp up to higher production here is that it was only two years ago that a lot of companies went bankrupt for trying to produce too much oil. And they said, we're never doing that again. And so they're slowly increasing their production rather than quickly increasing their production and putting themselves at risk. So it's all reactions to things that have just happened rather than price gouging. The reality is that companies like to make profits. It's kind of why they're publicly traded, that they want to make a profit doing stuff. And two years ago, uh, who was the price gouger when they had to pay people to take oil off their hands? There was a negative price per barrel for about two weeks where if you had a bunch of oil, you didn't have a place to put it and you were paying somebody to take it.
1: According to Morningstar, the 15-year return of oil company stocks, the industry stock, is 1.98% per year.
0: That doesn't sound like price gouging to me.
1: Uh, inflation, have- inflation, it's about the same. Well, yeah, it's, it's about the same as inflation. The 10-year is 2.98% per year. The last week, it dropped 13%, the industry. Uh, so... The three month return is one point one four. Year to date, yeah, it's up to twenty-three percent. One year it's up thirty one. But like Jake said, they were losing money hand over fist a couple of years ago. And
0: uh would it be hand under fist if you're will, losing the money?
1: So maybe uh, they the, the, the hit the the tradition is hand over fist. Like I don't know. Sand
0: why through the fist. hourglass or through your hands. These yeah. are so, the loss of profits.
1: Yes. See the fact is that the oil companies are not making excessive profits. They make a lot of profits for short periods. They're like farmers, like we was, I was talking about earlier. They make a lot of profits in some years and lose money in other years, and they
0: it's, just keep on peddling. It's kind of but, like looking at one month of the year to determine whether or not the federal government is going to be in debt. If you look at April, it sure looks like they're really profitable and they'll never have to be in debt again. Because that's when all the taxes are due. <laughs> if you look at, at a county and you say, um, how sustainable are? how well are they going to be able to pay their um, their interest on this municipal bond? And you just look at January for their revenue. Uh, Will you see all the tax revenue coming in January? Um, that, that is not a good way of looking at it. It's seasonal.
1: Let me... Let me throw something else in there, and this is a response to one of the questions we addressed last hour. Uh, Mark Hurlbert, who has been writing a column in the Wall Street Journal for many, many, many years, and who has published a
0: did he send us a question? Many,
1: no, no, but he has an answer.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: Uh, he published in the new in the in the Wall Street Journal a very interesting statement. Uh, if you were to if you looked at your value. In the stock market, pres- presuming that you're in the stock market specifically, he's referring to the S and P 500. If you were in an S and P 500 index fund, which we're not recommending, but I'm just telling you this is what he's referencing, or just the average investor in the stock market, he's referring to. If you looked at your value the day after the market drops 20 percent, in ten of the last twelve markets, a year later you had a 22 percent, 22.7 percent gain. Now, in two events and I can even tell you when those were it was 1973 and 2000. It took more than a year for you to make a profit, but you made a profit. So that is that's solid history. Now I'm not telling you what to happen in the future because I don't know what's happening in the future and as I've told many people over the 40 years I've been doing this, if I could tell you what was going to happen in the future, you couldn't afford to ask me. Uh, but the point is this is this is not a time to consider bailing out. This is a time, if you've got the ability to do so and you're interested in a long-term investor, it's very, very simple. If you're crazy, if you thought investing at the end of last year, at the tail end of a bull market when the S&P 500 had risen dramatically was a really good idea, the stock market is having a 20% off sale. If you think buying stocks, if you thought buying stocks was a really good idea late last year, it's by definition a better idea right now. Yeah, I'm not f- suggesting you, buy, you go out and buy stocks, but I'm just telling you, this is certainly not the time to sell.
0: There are a lot of companies out there with a price-to-earnings ratio in the single digits. Mm-hmm. What does good that mean? Companies. These are good companies that are profitable and a lot of companies that are now worth more, more just by selling their assets than what the market is
1: valuing them at. There's, there's a, subject, a very tiny piece of information that I have been watching for a long, for some time now that I think is significant. And it's just kind of one of those things I stick in the background and say that's very interesting and you have to be a bit of a geek to appreciate it I guess. Over the last year or so. Well, honestly, I don't think it's been the full year. Um it's been since November of last year. Export prices have risen faster than import prices. For example, in May The price of exports from the United States just in the month of May was 2.8% higher than it was the month before. The price of imports was 0.6% higher. That pattern has been showing up and consistently appearing. Um, Is that a major issue? It could be over a long period of time because there's an interesting thing that's going on at the same time. Our trade deficit this year has been declining all year. In other words, there's a dollar value to what we import and a dollar value to what we export. Now we think that's a fictitious number because there's an imp- there, we 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 claim some things as imports that really aren't imports, and there's a Are very we- significant export that we don't count as an export. Right. Uh, but there's an interesting price differential. People outside the United States are showing a willingness to pay significantly more money for things that we are exporting than they have in the past. And the things we're importing into the United States, we are cutting the prices that we're willing to pay for those things in in the sense that the price has not been going up. Now, fuel, if you take fuel out of it, by the way, because the price of fuel has been going up and we import fuel, we basically have we're not paying more for stuff that we're importing than we were last month or the month before. Now, why are we importing fuel? One of the reasons the price of diesel and the price of gasoline is up, this is really strange, is there's places in the United States where it is cheaper to import it from someplace else than it is to get it from Texas because there's just not enough pipelines. Yeah. It's that simple. Uh, We don't have the capacity, for example, although we, we refine a lot of fuel in Texas, we don't have the pipeline capacity or the truck capacity or anything else capacity to get that fuel to California and New York at a reasonable price. It's actually cheaper for them to import it from somebody else. And we've not been real crazy in the United States about building infrastructure for a long time. And we've punished people who tried to build infrastructure for a long time. And when we talk about infrastructure building, building more infrastructure, that's part of what we're talking about. And it's just a little thing, but it's one of those things that is consistent and I think indicates we have a very healthy economy. Right. Go ahead. I wanted to talk about something else, and it's it's just a, a reality check. We talked about earlier the fact that it is no longer true that 50% of the people in the United States or more couldn't afford to pay cash on a $400 emergency. That was true five years ago, but it's not true today. Correct. Um, there's another thing. Over the last 20 years or so, the euro has been worth about a dollar twenty five. $1.20, $1.25, pretty consistently. The last time it was down to the point where uh for an extended period of time, where a dollar would buy more than one euro, Ronald Reagan was president, which was a long time ago. The dollar is right now the Euro is at a dollar and five cents. It so it's come from a dollar and a quarter down to a dollar and five cents. What does that mean? Does it mean the the euro declined or the dollar appreciated? Yes, both. That is a reflection of the opinion of the world about how valuable it is to buy things in the United States or things from the United States, how, how stable the United States government and how likely it is that our economy will grow. In other words, the world is voting and they've changed their vote to say the United States economy is a really good place to be. That is an important thing to recognize. The other thing, and I've heard people talk about this. They're concerned that the stimulus package we put together, two stimulus bills under uh, President Trump, one stimulus bill under uh, Biden, and gave money to people, somehow caused inflation in the United States. Inflation in Great Britain is higher than in the United States. The Bank of England warned its citizens that inflation will probably hit 11% this year. European inflation is about the same size as ours. So it it isn't something restricted to the United States, and it almost certainly was not caused by the stimulus, and we're out of time. This is the personal wealth coach, and if you'd like to contact us off the air during the week, we have live people answering. During the weekend, we have voicemail uh, at 254-947-1111.
0: And you can reach that same line at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can also go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter or just read it there. You can see it going back lots of years. See what we had to say before. You can listen to our radio program going back lots of years. You can also find podcasts there, though you can find it anywhere podcasts are, are offered. Uh, You can contact us through the contact form or directly through email at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week with more of The Personal Wealth Coach.